Hey guys, good morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, we'll start here. Sit in. Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Ah, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God, we thank you for your word even for parts of it that make us a little bit uncomfortable, like the topic of your wrath and your anger. We pray for your help, Lord, as we try to wrestle through some of this today. Spirit, will you be moving in ways that we can't see? May you be doing the work that only you can do. And we open up ourselves. Transform us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, <coughs> uh, back when I was in college, um, I uh, it was actually my my first day, I think, on campus. Uh, I was I was I was registering my my car. It was ninety five Geo Prism. It's a beauty, and uh, as I was moving to the line uh, to do my car registration, there was this, this girl working the car registration line, and uh, she, like, I, like, walked up, and she, like, looked at me, and she smiled, right? It was, like, a normal smile. It was, like, one of those, like, she thinks, I'm hot. <laughs> um, later, she said, no, I just knew who you were, and so that's why I smiled, and I was like, well, sure. <laughs> anyway, a few months later, that same girl, uh, I started to think, like, well, dang, yeah, 
She's pretty hot. Right. Then I found out that, well, she kind of liked me and I kind of liked her. And so we started talking. And um, pretty soon we were, you know, having talks, right? We were like going to Walmart together, you know. Uh, we weren't dating, but we were, we were just having conversations, right? Um, and, uh, man, I was, I was really starting to like this girl. Um, I found out all about her family. She's from Arizona, right? And, uh, of course, she had, you know, told her family um, that we had been going to Walmart together. And uh, her mom was, like, getting so excited, right? Like, literally, her mom, uh, when she found this out, she went to the mall and got a license plate made that said April and John together forever with matching keychains and mailed them to us. Okay, thank you. Yeah, this is not normal, right? I was like, ooh, I was just going to Walmart, didn't know I was making a lifelong commitment. Um, anyway, so her mom was like all about it. Her dad, not so much. Uh, not that he like was unhappy about it, he was just generally silent um, about all things that involved me, which was fine. Because um, apparently that was the way he normally was, right? He was just kind of a quiet guy. He didn't say much. He didn't interact very much. Um, he didn't, you know, make his opinion uh, known on a wide variety of issues. Um, she told me more about her dad. She said, yeah, you know, he's kind of, um, uh, well, she, she described some of the things that he liked to do, right? He, he loved cars. He loved to, like, rebuild old cars. Um, I had a 95 Geo Prism. Okay, uh, he, he uh, liked, uh, he had worked in a mechanic shop earlier in his life. He, uh, at this point, um, had his own uh, steel construction company, right, that he ran. Uh, he built houses. Like, this guy was like a man's man, right? Uh, big guy, burly guy, big beard. Um, and, yeah, as, as I, the, the, the serious, more serious our relationship got, um, and the more I, I realized there's going to come a point where I'm going to have to meet this man, uh, I started to get a little bit nervous, right? Uh, because, like, he was a man's man, and I was, like, the exact opposite, right? Like, uh, I, did not, I did not rebuild cars in my garage. Um, I, like, like, barely even knew what car I drove. Um, I did not own a construction business. I had, like, the, the only thing I'd built in my life was, like, out of Legos, um, and so I was just I was just nervous about going out to meet him. Well, finally we had started dating, and towards the end of that summer, uh, I went out to Arizona in order to meet uh, this girl's family, and um, it went okay. Her mom, of course, was really nice, um, and uh, her dad was was kind enough, just really quiet. Um, her sister and uh, brothers assured me, "Oh no, this is normal. He likes you." Okay. I'll just take the silence that he actually does like me. Um, and so I was just, I was trying to be on uh, my best be- behavior, seeming, you know, to kind of be the manliest that I could muster. It wasn't much. And uh, uh, just try not to, you know, do anything stupid to make him, uh, you know, not like me. Well, um, about halfway through the trip, um, April's uh, whole family had, had gone off and were doing some different things during the day. Uh, and so her mom had asked me, she, she said, hey, would you mind uh, driving uh, uh, her younger sister and then her brother to the dentist? They have a dentist appointment this morning. Uh, would you mind driving them? And I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. I can totally do that. Uh, you can count on me, right? Uh, and so they're like, great, awesome, thank you. So they left. Well, remember, there's, like, her dad was like a car guy, right? So they had like 50 cars at their house. Um, 
and different stages of being worked on. And so uh, the, the car we were going to drive was uh, uh, April's um, little Honda, and uh, it was not in great shape, right? Um, like, it had got us back to Arizona, but um, it was not going to make a long trip again. In fact, uh, her dad had an appointment that night to try to sell it to somebody. Uh, and so uh, it, it wasn't a great car. Directly, so it was parked in the driveway, uh, and, and then kind of at a caddy corner behind it was this large suburban uh, they called the Beast in their family. Uh, and th- this, this vehicle ran... Um, and ran over anything in its way, and it was just it was just this massive vehicle in, in the driveway and a kind of an iconic uh, uh, figure in their family and so there I was um, we were all loading up in the car and um, as as we 're all getting in, uh, uh, her sister says to me, uh, "Hey, John, just so you know, uh, the beast is right behind you, you know because it was parked at an angle she didn 't mean hit and I was like, "Oh okay, thank you, I appreciate that so I, I put the keys in the car and I started it. It ran, I got ready to put it in gear, and it died. I was like, dang it. All right. He's selling the car tonight. That's all right. So I, I took, put the keys in again. I started it again. And, and this time I thought, well, really what it probably needs to keep from dying is just some gas, right? I just need to give it some gas. So I didn't want to floor it there in neutral. I thought well, probably better if I just throw it into, go ahead and throw it into reverse and then floor it, which is exactly what I did, right? So I throw it into reverse, and I floor it. And I got, you know, this far before, right, crunch, we hear. And I look in the rearview mirror, and uh, I see the eyes of her younger siblings just like this, (laughs) looking at me. And we all know, oh, this is terrible. Up to this point in my life, I had actually never been in a car accident. And in, in one moment, I managed to wreck one of my girlfriend's cars uh, into another one of my girlfriend's family's cars, right? Two for one. Uh, and so we got out. We're like, maybe it's just like a little scratch. And like, no, it wasn't, right? I had put this massive dent in the Suburban, uh, in the side door. Uh, but the car, the car that someone was coming to buy that night, uh, sure enough, the entire tail light had been busted out and there were just like scratches all over the place and dents. It's like... Your, your father is going to kill me, right? Uh, I didn't think he liked me in the first place, and now I know he will just hate me. And so we kind of drove in silence to the dentist, right? And they all went back for their dentist appointment, and I just, like, sat awaiting the, the punishment that would come upon me there in the waiting room, uh, contemplating how I got myself in this terrible situation. Uh, and then after, after they'd finished their appointment, they came out, uh, and we were all talking, right? They were like, well, so, we, so we've been thinking, we think it would probably be, be better if we didn't wait to tell dad, but if we, like, if we told him now. I was like, all right, whatever you guys think. And so um, the two sisters decided, right, like, like, you better let us handle this. You know, the more we think about it, like, you probably shouldn't even be around when we, we break the news to dad. So I was like, all right, whatever you think. So he was actually working in town that day. Uh, on a job site, and so I drove all of us over there, and we pull up on the job site, and kind of far away, right, and I just sit in the car with her brother while, while uh, April and her sister get out of the car, and, and they walk over to the fence, and hey, dad, right, and he's surprised to see him, and comes over, and they're all talking, and smiling, and laughing, and I'm just trying to make myself as small as I possibly can. 
And so, in, in you know, typical fashion, they, they tell him, uh, so dad, something happened. Everybody's okay, but the car. So he doesn't even like come to look at it. He's just like, okay. And that's it. And like goes back to work. And okay, this is going to be terrible. He says not a word, right? And so we just all drive back, and I just, uh, you know, April, it's been nice being your boyfriend. I'm sorry things had to end this way. Um, it's been nice knowing you. Um, anyway, so we get back, and I just, I have no idea. And reality is, like, he never actually says anything about it. And later that night, the people still come, and he still sells the car to them, I imagine, for a much reduced price, now that it had a busted uh, taillight, taillight on the back. Uh, and in the end, he actually did nothing. He just kept his mouth shut. Um, I found out later, he thought it was hilarious, right? <laughs> that I had done it. In fact, uh, that Christmas, uh, they said they wanted to get me a gift. I was like, well, that's, that's nice. And I opened up a present to find the busted taillight <laughs> in a box, right? And so he didn't kill me. He didn't even really get that angry at me. Um, and I went on to marry his daughter. So all is good. Now he's my father-in-law and uh, we get along well. Um, but there for, for, for a few moments, right, um, I had suddenly been cast into the hands of what I thought was a very angry man. I don't know if you've ever done that in your life. Maybe you can think back to a time when you were growing up. Uh, you did something and you thought, oh, crap, this is it. This person's going to get so mad at me or so angry at me. And it was at that point out of your hands. There's nothing you could do because your mistake, your error, had brought upon the wrath of somebody else. Um, God talks in Scripture several times about his anger or his wrath. And I think this is kind of an uncomfortable topic for us. But this is how God, in Exodus chapter 34, chooses to describe himself. He says... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and compassionate. But then he says, slow to anger. Yeah, slow to anger, but still a God who does get angry, right? I think first, if we're going to talk about this, um, we need to think about what does God mean when he talks about his anger? Well, in English, uh, we say slow to anger, right? But in the language that... Exodus was written in um, Hebrew, that's not kind of woodenly what it says. It's what it means, uh, but it actually sounds kind of funny uh, if we translate it woodenly into English. Uh, the Hebrew phrase is actually long of nose. Um, the word for anger is, in Hebrew, the word for nose or nostril. Kind of strange, right? Um, and I think the idea is like, you know, so... If I was up here and I like got really mad, right, and you were like watching carefully, probably my nostrils would start to flare, right? Have you ever like seen someone get angry and their nostrils are like, you know, like you don't bring it up in the moment because they're angry, but it's like, hey, that's kind of funny. Um, anyway, so for for them, I think this flaring of the nostrils uh, was a sign of anger, and so it became kind of. The word for nose became the word for anger. Take a look at Exodus chapter 15, uh, verse 8. I think this will help us understand it a little bit more. Um, here, Exodus 15, 
This is Moses' song, right? An Israel song after the parting of the Red Sea, how God had destroyed all of Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. Uh, listen to what Moses says in Exodus 15, verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. At the blast of your nose, is God like, is like the water's part? Or is it the blast of your anger? Well, yes. I actually think it's both. Right? So some translations here say, at the blast of your anger. Other translations say, at the blast of your nose. It's because it's the same word in Hebrew, but the idea is, uh, when someone gets angry and they're kind of breathing heavily through their nose, it's the, the blast of their nose or the, the, the blast of their anger that serves to accomplish their purposes. And so in their minds, I think these ideas were very related. So then in the biblical Hebrew mindset, God was a God who had a long nose. We think of Pinocchio, right? But that's not what they thought, right? God was not a liar. Rather, God had anger. It just, it took him a long time to actually get angry. But, as we just read in Exodus chapter 32, the anger does come. In fact, according to one writer, 518 times in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the subject of anger or wrath. God is a God who does, on occasion, get angry. So, if we're going to think about this together, what, what, do we need to, what do we need to know, or how should we think about the anger of God? Here's what I want to do. I just want to walk through um, just some observations that I've made about the anger of God in the Old Testament. Here's a few. Uh, first of all, um, God's anger is often, but not always, expressed against his own people. Right? Not every time, but a lot of the time in the Old Testament, God's anger is directed towards his own. Right? So Exodus chapter 4, Moses is talking with God. Right? Uh, God is saying, Moses, I want you to go back to this place that you fled from, and I want you to bring my people out. And Moses goes back and forth. No, God, are you sure? Sure I'm the right person. I'm not sure I should do it. Uh, you know, I can't speak that well. He has all of these excuses, right? And God is very patient with him, gives him answers. And then finally, we get to this point where Moses says, God, send someone else. And at that moment... God's anger flared up against Moses, right? God gets angry with his people, in this case with Moses, when Moses wasn't doing what God had clearly asked him and was going to empower him to do. Exodus chapter 22, verse 24. In the future, God says, when you are in the promised land, if you choose to go after idols, then just know in that day, my anger will be against you because you will have pursued other gods instead of me. Numbers, chapter 11, uh, the people here on the border of the promised land began to grumble and complain. It's amazing how much the Israelites complain in the wilderness, right? Um, I mean, they were, if you think about it, they were like literally slaves, right? Like, you were literally, like, working sun up to sundown seven days a week. You never had a day off. Life was miserable. 
And then they like get out into the wilderness and they're eating this manna. And there's just these, these moments in Numbers where they're like, oh, this is terrible. Remember when we were in Egypt? We sat beside the pots of meat. What? You just sat beside pots of meat? They're like, we just dug our forks in and ate as much meat as we wanted. Yes, and you also were dying because the slavery was so terrible, right? But once you get into the desert, apparently all of that kind of changes your perspective. And so the people are just grumbling and complaining, oh, we had garlic back in Egypt. We had cucumbers and leeks, and it was amazing. God's anger rises up against the people when they grumble and complain against him even though he had given them so many things. Numbers chapter 12, uh, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, actually come before Moses and they say, hey, we think you've got too much power. We, don't, we think we should have as much power as you do. And God, who had appointed Moses and sent him to do this job, rises up against them in anger. Many times, the anger of God is expressed against his own people. These are things that people are doing that they should know better. Right? They're either disobeying God's commands or they're doing things that God had suggested not to do or they're challenging the authority that God had established. Sometimes God's anger is not expressed against his own people, but oftentimes we find that it is. Here's another point. God's anger is often, um, or actually God's anger is always logical. Right? God's anger is logical. Um, God's response to anger made sense. When Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, come and say, hey, Moses, we think we should have some of your authority. We think you're, you're, uh, you're uh, being too selfish with the authority. We think you should give it to others. God comes in his anger, but he doesn't wipe out the entire Israelite camp. Instead, he speaks with Aaron and Miriam in a very specific and direct way, right? How dare you challenge me? And then he strikes Miriam with leprosy, right? Now, he could have done a number of things. He could have destroyed them and their whole families. He could have, in his anger, just like sent down this lightning bolt that would have just like consumed their tent and then like all of the tents within a one mile radius. But instead, he just punishes the ones who committed the crime, right? God's anger is logical. Here's another point that I I think is pretty related to this. God's anger is measured. It's contained. God doesn't go into a blind rage. I don't know if you've known anybody who just can like fly off the handle. Maybe uh, you guys have known people in your lives who are just angry people, right? Um, you never know what you're going to say. You always feel like you're walking on eggshells around them because in a moment's notice, they'll fly off the handle. But then perhaps there are some other people who don't get angry so quickly, but once they get angry, watch out, right? It's like sometimes I feel like uh, my kids feel like this around me. I try not to get angry with them, right? But like sometimes if I'm like grumpy, right, uh, someone will come in and they'll ask me something, one of the kids, and, you know, um, I'll, I'll give them an answer, and maybe if they thought it was a little grumpy, I'll like see them walking away, and like, <laughs> like they pass another sibling on the way in to talk to me, and they're like, "Don't go in there and talk to him, right? Uh, uh, you just want to stay away from him when he's grumpy." 
Uh, and I, I think this is our experience with people, right? A lot of times people get uh, angry and then anything that's in their past gets destroyed, right? The anger wells up within them and they're just in a blind rage. Ah, like stay out of the way of the God monster when he's angry because he's just going to destroy everything around him. But that's never the way God works, right? God does get angry, but his angry, but his anger, but his anger is not some uh, uncontrolled rage. It is logical. It is measured. It is predictable. I think this is important for us to realize. In fact, um, Bruce Bloyan says this about God. I think, I think this is so true. Uh, he says, if there is any unpredictability in Yahweh, it is in his extension of grace. Not judgment. Let's say it one more time. If there is any unpredictability in Yahweh, it is in his extension of grace, not judgment. If there's anything that you, you don't know what God's going to do, it's in his showing of grace. God, I didn't expect you to show grace to them. But his judgment, well, that's predictable. That's measurable. That's something you can expect, Right? Yet God does get angry, right? He is a God who describes himself as slow to anger. He is patient in getting there, but there is no escaping his anger once it comes. And here's, a, here's one final point I want to make about, um, about this issue of God's anger in the Old Testament. And it's this. God's anger serves God's ultimate redemptive purposes. Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, God always uses anger to redeem those who he's showing his anger to. Um, I know a lot of people today uh, don't like to think about God as angry at all. And so they say, well, maybe he's just angry for a little bit. But even those he's angry with, well, he finally ends up saving them. No, what I'm saying here is that God's anger serves God's ultimate redemptive purposes. When God gets angry, it seems to be in order to serve his redemptive purposes for humanity. And so, Deuteronomy 29 it seems to suggest that God was angry with Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? And so he destroyed them. I don't think there's any hope for Sodom and Gomorrah anymore. However, I think God's anger in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah served as a warning for the rest of humanity, that this is the extent of God's anger. And it helped to move people to be more faithful to a God who has anger like that. God will ultimately destroy those who are rebelling against him. And the warning, the threat of that judgment, I think, serves a redemptive purpose for us here and now because we don't want to be cast into the hands of an angry God, right? God's anger serves God's ultimate redemptive purposes. Sometimes uh, it is for, the, uh, for his own people. Sometimes it seems like it is for the sake of the world. But there's something about God's anger that actually serves to save. Uh, William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, I guess. Um, he tells the story of... Uh, the time when he had a three-month-long affair 
on his wife with her best friend. Um, and he just talks about just the, just the turmoil on the day that his wife found out. She gave him a call and she said, I know, and I'm at your office. And as he took that drive to his office, knowing what awaited him, um, he walked in and, and he said, she just unleashed on him this torrent of fury, anger, rage, just absolute uh, uh, such anger coming out of her mouth. And, and for hours, he just sat there and, and took it, right? And finally, he actually says, uh, he, he said, I've, if we're going to do this, you've got to know everything. And so then he told her even more than what she did. And the anger continued, and, and she was just livid. And yet later, as he looked back on that moment, this is what he said. He said, I believe it was the intensity of her fury that saved me. There's something that happens when we realize the damage that our sin does, the response that our sin creates in others that actually can have a redemptive purpose. Oftentimes, we may not be able to get away from our sin until we can realize the full damage that our sin is doing to others. And the full affront it is to God. And so I think in many ways, God's anger does serve a redemptive purpose. It is, in my opinion, actually a great grace of God that he does get angry. Like we talked about last night, he is not an apathetic God. He is a God who, who has anger and does get angry. But one of the things we want to talk about this weekend is not just who is God, but we also want to wrestle with the question, how does God see us? What does God think of us? And so as we wrestle with this idea of God's anger, how should we see the anger of God in our day? And I know, guys, this is kind of heavy, uh, but we're, we're going to try to sort through some of this stuff because um, I, I, think, I think this is what Scripture teaches about the anger of God. And I, I think it's so important for us to wrap our minds around this today. Okay? All right. So a few things that I think we need to understand about the anger of God. First of all, God gets angry when people sin. We see this in Exodus 32, right? God says, go back down the mountain, Moses, because these people, notice how he kind of, he calls them your people, right? He says to Moses, your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have built themselves a boy. And God gets angry with them because of their sin. Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We may want to think of God as a God who does not get angry at sin. Guys, the reality is God hates sin, and the reality of sin stirs up anger within him. We serve a God who is patient and slow to anger, but we do serve a God who gets angry. And sin angers our God. 
Here's another point that I think we need to realize. The full expression of God's anger is more than we could bear. Notice what happens in Exodus chapter 32. God says, this stiff-necked people has built this golden calf. Now watch out, Moses. I'm just going to wipe them all out and start again with you. If in the verses that follow, if Moses had not interceded for the people, it certainly seems as if God would have acted in the full extent of his anger and wiped them out completely and totally. The full extent of God's anger was more than the people of Israel could bear. And the reality is, guys, the full extent of God's anger is more than any of us could bear. It won't just make us cower in shame. I think it would actually kill us. And this is a terrifying thought. To know that it is sin that angers God, and I am a person who is full of sin. We have to wrestle with that. All right. Number three. And this, to me, is where things get... Things begin to become beyond what I understand. Beyond what I comprehend. um, Or can reason my way into. But this is, I think, what Scripture teaches. God provided a way For his anger to be poured out for our sake. I want to look at a few passages that I think, in my opinion, uh, help me understand this. I don't get it. I don't understand why God did it. But he's done it. I teach Isaiah at Ozark. And and as I was working through Isaiah um, last year, I just kept coming across some of these verses. And like, I just had to stop and read them again and again and again. Is this really what this is saying? Because if this is what this is saying, this this seems beyond comprehension. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 57. For I will not contend forever. This is God speaking. Nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't stand before the anger of an almighty God. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. This is what he did to Israel, right? But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Now listen. I have seen him and his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him in his mortars, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. God seems to be saying in Isaiah 57 that he is making a decision at some point in history, that he will not be angry anymore. And this seems like good news for us. The the prospect that a holy God who we have offended, who we have stirred up his anger, that he could, 
in fact, look at us and not be angry? This seems too good to be true. And we wonder, but how? How is it possible? I mean, can you just like pass over the sin as if it never happened? It seems like actually the point through much of the Old Testament is, no. Isaiah says earlier in Isaiah, your hands are covered with blood and nothing you can do will get the blood off. You can't scrub hard enough because your sin is too deep. So no, I don't think God can just gloss over our sin as if it never happened. Something has to happen in the course of history in order to allow God to say something like this. And this, I think, is where Isaiah 53 comes in. Isaiah 53, um, really, all of, all of Isaiah seems to be, especially chapters 40 through 66, uh, seems to be building to this moment in Isaiah 43. You get, or 53, you get these fantastic pictures of, of God's deliverance, and yet you always come back to this question, but how, God? But how are you going to allow that to happen? How are you going to allow us to go free? How are you going, like in Isaiah 57, how are you going to not be angry with us anymore? And in Isaiah 53, we meet the servant who seems to suffer on our behalf. Here's what it says. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And listen to this. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I'm not sure how else you understand that. Unless you see that in this moment, it seems that God's full anger and wrath is being poured out upon the servant. And as a result, then we experience peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sin makes God angry. And this servant seems to take ours. And he seems to bear it on his shoulders. And then he seems to incur the full wrath of God. We did not deserve treatment like this. And yet God seems to suggest this is what I will do. This is what then He has done in the person of Jesus. Listen then, I think, to one more passage. Actually, this is the, the next chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. You finish this, this heavy chapter of Isaiah 53, and then Isaiah 54 begins with the words, sing. Because it's so heavy and so, so inexplicable that this, this servant will suffer and seems to even die for others. But it seems that this is, the, this is the thing that brings salvation. And so in chapter 54, singing just breaks out, right? Because somehow through this, now deliverance is accomplished for God's people. Isaiah 54 then, verse 9, says this. This is like the days of Noah to me. This is God speaking. As I swore 
that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. God seems to make a commitment here. Just like he made a commitment to not flood the world again. That he will not be angry with you anymore. It's only possible because of Jesus. But this is the reality, guys. God says, I will not be angry with you anymore. And so, our last idea, because of this, uh, because of Jesus, God is no longer angry with us. And this is key, guys. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, God looks at his sacrifice and says, it is enough. If you choose to align yourself with Jesus, his sacrifice covers the anger that you stirred up. Jesus' sacrifice covers the anger of God that you deserve. And in my opinion, this is what we mean by the English word propitiation, right? Which is a super confusing word that we only read in the Bible and we have no idea what it means, right? So it just makes us feel dumb when we read it, so we just kind of move on. But Romans chapter 3, this is so important. Romans chapter 3. We'll start in verse 23 because I think uh, it helps to see the context. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. I don't think propitiation means some sort of uh, means by which sin is just removed. I think propitiation means he is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus is the propitiation, the sacrifice that takes away wrath for our sins. This was to show God's righteousness because, the last part of the verse, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And in this moment, God chooses through Jesus to forgive us. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 10 says this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how God loved us. He sent Jesus to take the wrath that belonged to us and bear it for our sake. And as a result, we no longer have to. Guys, maybe you know this already, but this changes... This changes the way we live, right? 
If this is true, then we are no longer functioning under the wrath of God. If this is true, then when I choose to say yes to Jesus and yes to his sacrifice, then that covers me. God looks at me through the lens of Jesus. And he is satisfied. If I choose, however, to reject this sacrifice, there is no propitiation. There is no covering of my sin. And that's a terrifying thought. And yet I think this is the reality. Maybe one that we don't like to think about much or talk about much, but I think this is... This is what scripture seems to suggest. For those who choose Jesus, God's anger is no longer against us. But for those who reject him, God's anger still remains. Listen to how God describes his judgment and his anger in Isaiah chapter 63. Verse 1, who is this that comes from Eden and crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then God says, Lord is up, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And then someone asks God, God, why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Why is your garment covered in blood? In verse 3, God says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Guys, the sobering reality is a day is coming when God will judge the world. And for those who do not choose to accept the sacrifice of Jesus, God's wrath remains. But for those of us who choose to accept it, well, there is no better news than to hear that God is no longer angry. All right, so here's the lesson that I think we need to walk away with this from this today. God is good, so I don't have to face his wrath. God is good, so I don't have to face his wrath. But again, we're asking the question, how does God see us? Here's what I think we need to walk away from this with. If that's true, then God is, God is not angry with me. I don't know about you, but I struggle from time to time with feeling like God's just kind of angry at me. Maybe you don't struggle with sin, but I struggle with sin. And sometimes I do dumb stuff, and then I think, dang it, God's got to be really angry with me. 
maybe he's not angry, but maybe, uh, maybe he's just kind of disgusted with me. Maybe just mostly disappointed. But I think when we think some of those things, the the thoughts that run through our head are thoughts like this. I'm such a disappointment. Why would God ever like me? Why would God ever look at me with favor? I'm such a disappointment. But the reality is, guys, if this is true, then God looks at us not through the lens of our own sin, but through the eyes or through the lens of Jesus. And Jesus bore the wrath for the sin that we committed. And because of that, God now looks at us and is satisfied. So no, he is not angry at you. Even in the midst of your sin, God looks at you and chooses to love you. He chooses to show you mercy. And he chooses to show you grace. Lastly, he wants us for you to sit and remain in your sin. Right? But God does, God does not look at you and say, you are a disappointment. God looks at you and says, I love you. I have better things for you. Man, did I, did I tell you how much I love you? Have you guys seen this movie, uh, The Heart of Man? This came out um, sometime last fall. Um, it's sort of like a documentary um, slash drama, I guess. Uh, it, it basically uh, kind of tells the story of sexual addiction um, and kind of the journey to God in the midst of it all. So it interviews several different individuals and kind of interspersed with their interviews, you have this, this story kind of playing in the background of a father who is God and his son, who, who strays away from him. It's a powerful movie, um, but as I was watching it, I was, I was struck by something. You see, uh, the father, uh, early on in the, in the movie, uh, he spends a lot of time with his son, and he, in fact, makes his son this violin, right? He gives it to his son, and then, and then they sit and they like, play the violin together. And as the first part of the movie continued on, and you watch this little boy grow up, um, I noticed how many times the father, who is God, sat there and just like watched the son. Like he just watched him play. A little bit later, as he was older, he just like sat and watched him fish with a smile on his face. He sat there and played violin with him and just like smiled. And it actually was a little bit uncomfortable for me. Since like, doesn't the father have something better to do? Right? Like, isn't there something better for the father to do than just like sit and watch the son? And it was tough for me because I realized, like, well, I think that's kind of how I think about God. Like, maybe God's not, like, super angry with me anymore, but God's not really a big fan of me. I'm not really that interesting of a person. Surely God has better things to do than to look at me like that. And it's kind of uncomfortable, right? It's like, maybe God should just, like, go off and do his own thing and I'll kind of do my own thing. And the more I thought about it and wrestled with it, I actually think that may be accurate. That the Father looks at us in love. 
And he watches us and he sits with us. And he enjoys being with us. The idea that God would enjoy my company seems pretty foreign to me. And yet, it seems if he is no longer angry with me and if he sees me through the eyes of Jesus, perhaps God might just say to me what he said to Jesus. You are my son. With you I am well pleased. There's a scene uh, towards the end of the movie where the son has made some terrible mistakes and uh, actually ends up and uh, chained up inside a dark cave, and uh, he's, he's been enslaved to sin, right? And so he is bruised and, and bleeding all over. Um, he's suffering, he's weeping because of his sin, and he's just stuck in this dark, dark place. And there's a powerful moment where, where the, father, uh, the father comes and actually kind of breaks down the wall of the cave. And he comes in, and he gets right down next to the sun. And he hugs him. But then, he pulls back from the hug, and he sits down next to him, and he gets in his bag. And he pulls out a violin, and gives it to his son. And the father pulls out his violin. And there they sit, on the floor of the cave, playing their violins together. And I think it's this picture that so many of us need to hear. God does not despise you in the midst of your sin. God loves you. And he longs for you to choose freedom. But in the meantime, he'll sit with you. And he'll help you. And he'll guide you. And he'll smile. Because God deeply loves you. And he's not angry with you anymore. This morning, uh, you're going to have some questions uh, to sort through uh, in your quiet time for meditation. And I want you to wrestle with some of these things. Maybe for some of you, you've, you've already worked through a lot of these things. It's like, yeah, I never feel like God's angry with me. It's like, all right, that's awesome. But I think for others of us, if we're just, like if we're really honest with ourselves, in those deep, dark places, right, when we do stuff, that we know we shouldn't do, when we find ourselves in some of those familiar pits that we've been in before, we just get into a cycle of hating ourselves and feeling like we're worthless. And I think Satan uses those moments to, to speak lies into us and to twist our theology. So, more than anything, I hope you'll just kind of meditate on some of these scriptures as we read them and, and try to ask God the question, God, what do you want to say to me through this, okay? So maybe we can do this. I can pray, and then Drew, you have the Drew has the sheets uh, that you can take, and he can give you additional instructions. So let me pray for you guys. God, I, I still struggle. with how you see me. Uh, I still struggle to feel the full extent of your, your grace and your acceptance. Uh, part of me just feels as if 
I shouldn't. Because I've not been good enough, or I haven't earned it enough, or because I just deserve your wrath. So God, I pray that you would help me and all of these here today to accept the grace and, and the mercy that you freely give. To embrace the truth of what your word says. And to allow that to speak over the lives. I pray spiritual protection right now over this group. And ask God for your Holy Spirit to uh, protect them from the lies of the enemy. And from the work of Satan to distract and uh, to steal this time away from them. I pray that you help them to focus on your word. I pray that you allow them to listen to your voice. And pray, Lord, uh, just against any attack. Father, will you surround them, protect them, and will you speak your truth to them? Will you allow us, God, to look into your eyes over the course of the next several minutes um, and to hear the truth about how you see us? We pray this in the name of Jesus.